0: This is Abigail Favali, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Culture. Well, I'm super excited to be in the studio here with Dr. Luke Pitak of Belmont University, an economist and professor, and also a former student of mine. So this is super super fun for me. So back in the day when I coached the debate team at George Fox, Luke was on the debate team, and we had this amazing crew for several years who were just, it was just a really fun time. Um, And then he went on to get his PhD in economics and somewhere in Colorado, right? Or remind Uh me.
1: Yeah. Colorado State University. Colorado
0: State. That's where my parents met, Fort Collins. What? Yeah. It's a beautiful town. Yeah, a great um, town. Mm-hmm. And now you're in Tennessee. Yeah. How do you like it?
1: Uh, it's great. Uh, you know, one one thing, Tennessee in some ways, uh, it reminds me of the Pacific Northwest and that it's very green here. So uh-huh. living in Colorado for five years, it's very dry, very yes. brown. So moving out here, it rains a lot and it's green. So I grew up in Oregon, so mm-hmm. it's like a little bit of home. So yeah. that's nice.
0: And you're a GFU alum. So what year did you graduate?
1: Uh, so I graduated from George Fox in 2014. And okay. then I went straight to graduate mm-hmm. school uh, after I graduated, mm-hmm. finished my PhD in the spring of 2019, and then started here at Belmont as an assistant professor, fall 2019.
0: Awesome. So you've just like, you've just gone right through each step smoothly.
1: Yeah. Uh, Basically. That's awesome. Congrats. Yeah. I would not have, when I started at George Fox in 2010 as an undergrad, I would would not have thought this is where I would have ended up.
0: Really? uh, What did you, what would you have predicted then?
1: Well, I don't know. I started as a film studies major, so I don't know. I guess I thought I was going to be the next Scorsese or whatever, but uh, (laughs) I quickly realized that was not going to happen. So, uh,
0: so, what drew you to economics?
1: Um, yeah, that's that's a question people always ask. Uh, well, so as an undergrad, I was an econ philosophy double major.
0: Oh, yeah, I should remember that.
1: Um, you know, I, I what economics offers is a really kind of structured way of thinking a lot of, of about a lot of the problems in kind of philosophy, particularly moral philosophy issues of distributive justice that I was interested in. Um, And so I found it to be a compelling framework for thinking about some of those issues. And then also, I mean, I was considering graduate school like my junior senior year, and I wasn't sure if I wanted to go in philosophy or economics. Mm -hmm. Um, And I actually had a conversation. Well, two things. One, Nate Peach, Mm -hmm. who's now no longer at Fox, but but was uh, taught many of my economics Mm -hmm. courses, kind of pushed me towards economics graduate school and was really encouraging there, And second, I had a conversation with uh, now retired uh, Martin Cloud Harrison, Mm -hmm. who, uh, uh, absolute legend. Uh, Mm -hmm. And uh, Mark was basically like, look, like the job market for philosophy PhDs is not Mm -hmm. very good. He's like, and if you get into a top 20 program, there's no guarantee you get a job. And Mm -hmm. so he wasn't, he was like, if that's what you want to do, like, you know, I'll support you. But he was very realistic about what the job market looked like. And so. I made sort of a practical decision to apply to econ graduate school yeah. um, and it worked out.
0: Yeah, I guess. So have you been able to still draw on your background in philosophy, like in your graduate work and then in your current work as a professor?
1: Yeah, um, I, I de- definitely so. I mean, so my kind of research areas are are basically kind of the macroeconomics of long run growth and income and wealth inequality. And so thinking about uh, issues of distributive justice, uh, you know, kind of motivates that work, although some of that work is less, it's not necessarily moral philosophy, more Mm -hmm. than it is kind of constructing positive models of how the economy works and testing those implications. But I'm interested in thinking about kind of are are there policies that could both make the economy a fairer place, more equal place, while also not kind of sacrificing economic growth or economic activity. So can we find, you know, economists like to talk a lot about, you know, an efficiency equity trade-off. And so sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, economists frame equity is coming at the cost of efficiency. And so one way to read some of the work that I've done is thinking about are there policies are there places where there's inefficiencies that when we correct them also improve the distribution of wealth or income in a way that's more equitable? And so that that kind of philosophical problems motivate my my thinking about the economy, even if it's not, you know, I'm not working in moral philosophy mm-hmm. directly in any right.
0: way. Yeah, but this sounds almost like a more helpful, forgive me philosophers who are out there, but the fact that you're able to actually apply practically – Um, Some of the concerns of moral philosophy in ways that might actually work in the real world. That seems like a pretty sweet spot to be in.
1: Yeah, it can be. I wouldn't say, you know, I think some of the kind of economic modeling, economic theory work is still pretty abstract.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: But maybe one step in the direction of reality closer.
0: (laughs) Okay. I'm excited about this. This will be, this will be a radical role role reversal in that I am your student, Dr. Tech, because I don't, I don't (laughs) know anything about economics. Although, um, and also do you say economics or economics?
1: Uh, people say it both ways. I I say economics usually.
0: Economics, economics. Okay. I don't know. I might just flip back and forth. Um, I'm going to be noncommittal, but what you just described in somehow finding a place where you have an economic system that works, but that also is as just as it can be, like finding that that fruitful tension between those things, that's where I get really confused, right? Because I'll I look at different possibilities like socialism, communism, capitalism, from more of just an idealist perspective. And I think, okay, well, this seems like a better or more just system but then, but then the question of, okay, but does it actually work? Does it actually work mm-hmm. in the real world is a, is a totally separate question of which I feel like I know even less about that. So I don't know, maybe one good way to start is to hear, hear more about what work you've done in terms of um, economic inequality and wealth disparity and maybe what the lay of the land is in the US and maybe even the world. I don't know how wide ranging um, your work goes. So what what what's the state of what's the status quo and then, what are some of the forces driving wealth disparity?
1: Okay, um, so uh, the status quo is that in much of the developed world, so the United States and Western Europe, uh, inequality by any number of measures has basically been rising for these at a slow but steady rate for the past i don't know 40 years or so and there's debates about how great the increase in inequality has been people get into the really nitty gritty about how are you measuring it is, you know and, you know is this statistic really measured exactly correctly and it doesn't really any series you look at even given those you know squabbles where you might get you know some number that's 1% higher 1% lower mm-hmm the trends are towards increasing inequality. So some common measures might be uh, if we're talking about income inequality, uh, just the share of income going to the top 10% of earners or the top 1% of earners. And so in in most advanced economies, let's take the United States, the United Kingdom, France, for example, increasing in all those economies. Um, There's also been an increase in the share of wealth held by the top 1% of wealth owners. So Income is a flow, right? It's defined over a period. It's your earnings over a given period of time. Wealth is a stock, so we can point to the value of wealth at a given point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, wealth, in general, is always more unequally held than income, and that's because wealth is passed intergenerationally in a way that income is not. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you think about if my grandparents were very wealthy, they can pass that down to me, but if my grandparents, you know, you know, earned a lot of income, but didn't save and had no wealth, there's no guarantee that I'm going to earn a lot of income. So we we would expect wealth to be held more unequally than income. Hmm. uh, But it's also been increasing. Uh, We could also look at measures of what are called the functional distribution of income. So you can think about uh, basically income earned based on your place in the process, right? So you could earn income from your place as a laborer, so it's wage income, and take total wages over total income in the economy. That's something we call the wage share, the labor share. That's been trending downward. Uh, We could also income earn based on the fact that you're an owner of capital, so it's profit income, and we could look at the total profit income and national income. The profit share, what's sometimes called the capital share, national income has been going up. Um, And so those are the general kind of sort of trends um, in inequality. And now there's a whole lot of theories or debate about what's generating those trends. There's a lot of disagreement about, you know, so inequality is rising. Is this mean there's something we should do about it, right? Is Mm -hmm. there, right? And and you can break that debate down into, is it inefficient that inequality is rising? And so this is really the kind of Uh, metric for action that economists use. And so uh, maybe I'll come back to that in a second, but then there's all agreement about, okay, even if it's efficient, maybe it's not just, and that's more Mm -hmm. of a normative weight, which economists don't necessarily like to wade into, but I think we have a, economists like to think we can neatly separate kind of positive and normative claims. Mm -hmm. And if we just keep, you know, make positive claims or focus on describing the economy, we can avoid, but really it's very hard to do that in practice, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in terms of descriptively what's causing that, you know, a lot of economists will talk about skill bias technical change, which is a jargony way of saying, uh, you know, the labor market has demanded, you know, quote unquote, higher skilled workers, which is the terminology I don't like, but basically less mm-hmm. kind of manual task intensive jobs or uh, jobs that involve kind of, I don't know, uh, cerebral thinking, math skills, these, these types of things. Uh, second globalization. So just competition, uh, between low wage workers in domestically and abroad, uh, leads to widening in the skill distribution, some economists. So famously Tom Piketty Gabriel real Emmanuel Sayaz, and that kind of group point to also changes in the tax code is affecting kind of pre-tax income shares. Mm-hmm. So if you look at marginal tax rates in the United States, Um, in the 50s and 60s, the marginal tax rates, so that is the tax rate in the top bracket, not the average tax rate, but the tax rate on, you know, every dollar earned above whatever the threshold in the top bracket is, was close to 90%, um, and it's come down to its 37% uh, right now. So uh, you can think about, they point to the fact that when you have really high marginal tax rates, this disincentivizes people to earn really high levels of income, right? So it also compresses the pre-tax distribution and so changes in the tax code. So there's all these, and there's lots of other different stories out there about what's Mm -hmm. driving the increase um, in inequality. And so there's these different arguments about, you know, what, what can we, what can we sort of do about it? A Mm -hmm. um, and stop me at any time. So I have a
0: question, like what kind of disparity are we talking about? Like, is there, A number you can put on, let's just say in the United States between that group you're talking about, that top, let's say 10% of earners. Let's talk about income rather than wealth now that you've made that helpful distinction. Um, Like, what are we talking here in terms of disparity? How unequal is it?
1: Yeah. um, So, let me just, I will tell you uh, the top income share. So, for the top 1% of earners in the US, you know, that that's somewhere around. And, you know, this is you can give or take this is estimated the, the way that they, you know, Piketty originally, so this is a Piketty famous paper back from 2003. And then he's updated these statistics, you know, his mm-hmm. book Capital and 21st century came out in 2014. But using tax data, uh, the top 1% of earners earn approximately 20% of all income in the United States around mm-hmm. that much. So, so uh, it, at, and, and that's increased from kind of the trough it was at in, you know, about 1970 of about 10%. So it's basically that, that share is about double though, since the mm. 1970s, early 1980s. Um, another metric is, like I said, the labor share of income. Historically, it was kind of a stylized fact that factor shares, so labor share, profit share are constant, and the labor share was always two thirds. Uh, it's depending on what estimates you look at, gone down from anywhere between six and 10 percentage points. So, um, those are two different estimates, but top income shares have about doubled since 1970. So what's, Um,
0: what's happening to everyone else? I guess who's not in that 1%? Is it stagnant? Is it growing, but more slowly? Like what's the whole, the whole picture here, I guess.
1: Yeah, well, so I mean, so the income share, right, so income shares, right, it's a share. So mm-hmm. if the top 1%, if the share of income going to the top 1% is expanding, the share of income by definition going to everyone else has gone, has gone down, or at mm-hmm. least for some group it has to have gone down if the mm-hmm. share going to that particular group has gone up. Um, now, across the board, kind of growth in average incomes, or mm-hmm. one way you could think about it is kind of the average growth rate of the economy, which is a nice metric of kind of how fast opportunities are growing overall for everyone, mm-hmm. uh, has slowed somewhat over the past, I don't know, 20 to 30 years. So there's this big literature on secular stagnation, which looks at the slowdown in productivity growth in advanced economies. And so, this is, you know, for, for middle class households, those in the middle of the income distribution, uh, it, it hasn't been great. Um, so, for some of those households, you know, I, I don't know exactly, I'd have to go and look mm-hmm. at the data, but, you know, uh, the share in the share of national income that they're earning has gone down, just by the mm-hmm. definition of shares. Given the share of the top one percent has gone up, for others it's been roughly constant. But if you look at kind of income growth um, for different percentiles of the distribution, the growth that we have experienced has, by and large, favored those at the top. Of the, the the income distribution. So globally, uh, there's this graph uh, that's sometimes referred to as the elephant curve. It, hmm. And it's because it looks like an elephant when you draw it. Uh, and so, if you plot the share of global growth, what it looks like is it goes up for like the bottom, I don't know, 10 to, to 40% globally, right? So, there's been growth for the poorest mm-hmm. in the world, which is a good thing. Right. But then, for those that are kind of middle to just below the top, it, it's been relatively slow over the past whatever, hmm. 20, 30 years. And then it kind of really tips up at the top of the distribution.
0: Um, Ah, okay.
1: Global global growth has favored those at the top.
0: Okay, and uh, the and the bottom though. So it sounds like
1: globally, yes. Okay. So towards the bottom of the distribution, right? If if we're looking at the global now, I'm kind of shifting gears on you. But if we're looking at the Mm -hmm. global income distribution. Uh, since like, you know, 1980, late 1980s, there's, there's been growth at at the bottom of the global income distribution. And that's driven by the very poorest people in India and China mm-hmm. kind of coming out of poverty, uh, being drawn into urban areas. Um, and, and so there's been growth there. But then as you get to kind of the, the are the top, but not quite at the top, like, so the average person at the US level if is towards the top of the global income distribution. Right. Uh, the percentage increase in real income has been close to zero. But then as you get to the very top, again, of the global income Mm -hmm. distribution, the top 1% in the U.S. uh, very high percentage increase in real incomes over this period.
0: Hmm. Wow. Okay.
1: So, Story and sorry, I I kind of brought in the kind of global story there Mm -hmm. too, but so the story is different depending if you're looking at just within the U S or Western Europe, or, or if you're looking globally.
0: Okay. So tell, let's talk about the global story then. What, yeah. What is that story?
1: <laughs> I mean, I think generally more positive. And the, okay. the past, you know, several decades have seen big increases in standards of living for kind of the poorest people in the world. And that's, again, driven by basically China and India and, and hmm. people living in poverty there kind of in rural areas. Uh, Being pulled into cities, having their incomes go up. And so they've experienced pretty significant income growth. And so that's actually kind of a success story. Mm -hmm. Uh, The percentage of people in global poverty has been steadily decreasing. So if you measure that by like people living on less than a dollar or two dollars a day, that's been going down for a long time now. Hmm. So uh, that's a success story Mm -hmm. relative to kind of what's happening within. Right, the U.S. or within countries in Western Europe. If we look across countries, there's been significant progress uh, mm-hmm. against global poverty.
0: So is that is that like a capitalism success story?
1: Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, because it's hard to you know, like I said, a lot of this is due to what's happening in China, and so how much of that is capitalism right. versus? I mean,
0: it's
1: mm. so I don't know. I think it's I think it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Okay. But well, I, you know. Maybe some of it is. I don't
0: know. Mm-hmm. Well, I yeah, I want to kind of dig into this idea of t- capitalism, but maybe a little bit later because I have some more questions about what you've been describing. So I don't know if you can answer this. I mean, you're like an encyclopedia. And so I'm just going to kind of ask anything I want. <laughs> but if you can't answer it, that's totally fine. Um, but I'm curious, like in the United States, so shifting back to the United States, how does this terrain or does it at all map onto kind of the political landscape of America. So are there places in the United States where there's more or less income disparity? And do those tend to be blue states, red states? Is there nothing consistent there? I'm curious how that, how that shakes out, if there are any patterns.
1: Yeah. So this is something that I've worked on specifically, um, and it's something that's an interest to me. So my dissertation was on Basically, a lot of the work I do is thinking about these macroeconomic problems, but through the Mm -hmm. lens of regional economic data in the U.S. and kind of how I can use regional data to to get at and answer these problems. And so one kind of fact that people in in the regional and urban literature are grappling with is the decline of regional income convergence. So, uh,
0: And what's that? (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah. So okay, good. if I were to take the poorest places, so imagine imagine we, we arrange on, a, you have a graph, and mm-hmm. on the uh, horizontal axis, you plot uh, income per person in 1940. And mm-hmm. on the vertical axis, you, you plot both in income per person between 1940 and 1960. Okay. Over that time period, the places that are towards the, the origin, right, so the poorest places on the horizontal axis grew the fastest over the next 20 years. Mm -hmm. So basically what you would have is a downward sloping line. So the poor places growing fast, rich places were growing slow, which Mm -hmm. means that the poor places were catching up to the rich places. Mm -hmm. And so this is what you had in the United States in the kind of middle part of the 20th century. You Mm -hmm. had poor states growing faster than rich states. So places were becoming more alike in terms of their standards of living and quality of life that process has stopped. So between mm. 1990 and today, if you draw that same graph, the line is either horizontal or depending on kind of your endpoint and how you're measuring growth, vert- uh, upward sloping, mm. right? So meaning there's horizontal line, there's no convergence. Uh, if it's upward sloping, there's divergence, right? That would mean mm. rich places are growing faster. Right. And so that's kind of the situation we're at, we're at now. Mm. And so one kind of implication is that rising inequality um, has led to kind of a spatial divergence in standards of living and in outcomes Mm -hmm. within the United States. And this kind of makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. If you observe that the top 1% share is growing, unless all the people in the top 1% are kind of distributed equally across space, it has to be Mm -hmm. the case that different places are kind of pulling away and some are doing better uh, than other places. And so, uh, economists, political scientists, people kind of at that intersection have, um, thought a lot about this in conjunction, in conjunction to things like populism in the United States. And can this explain, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, recent electoral patterns, um, and, and is it related to things like, you know, uh, the opioid crisis and deaths yeah. of despair. So Angus Deaton has a book called uh, Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism uh, that, that's looking at this, and it's kind of linking differential regional fortunes in terms of the economy in the U.S. to these various health outcomes. And so there's been a lot written on this, um, and I think it's one consequence, and maybe for, for me, one of the more troubling consequences of rising inequality overall is that uh, increasingly kind of where you're located in space has a huge hmm. impact on your economic livelihood over your lifespan.
0: Right. So are I'm assuming that the richer places are the coasts, you know, like New York, California. I mean, is that pretty consistent or are there some surprises?
1: Yeah. yeah so it's, I mean, it, it's driven by the, the term urban economists use is called agglomeration economies. I don't know why we have to invent these <laughs> terrible, you know, sounding words for <laughs> sort of thing, but basically meaning people are more productive when they co-locate together, right? So okay. there's, there's productivity spillovers from density basically. Mm-hmm. And so you would kind of anticipate that there's this type of increasing returns effect, um, but some of the divergence, right? I mean, it, it wouldn't be so troubling if that opportunity was available to everyone um, kind of looking at causes of that divergence. One thing people focused on is the housing market mm-hmm. and then looking at, um, so there's there's a paper uh, in Journal of Urban Economics in, I don't know, I think 2019 by Ganong and Shoag, where they, they look at that divergence plot. And, and what they show is that basically among areas that had very little restrictions on building new housing supply, mm-hmm. there, there's still some convergence, whereas Areas where it was really hard to build new housing, which includes all the big prosperous coastal cities, that that's yeah. where kind of convergence has, has stopped, and so uh, there's you know inequalities linked to these kind of local level phenomenon in the literature in that way. Sorry, I don't think I answered your question. I
0: no no, I off. have a, I have more questions. Um, so what about within? So not let's say not comparing. Um, you know, I don't know like. Mississippi with New York, right? Obviously you'd get, you'd see a lot of divergence there. Um, but what about within a state, like say within California? So it's a very, one of the wealthiest states, but what okay. about the disparity within that state between the richest and the poorest? What does that look like compared to say, a, maybe a poorer state overall, but is there less inequality in a, in a state that's poor overall, like Mississippi or Ohio um, does that make sense? The question I'm asking?
1: Yeah. I'm not sure of the answer off mm-hmm. the top of my head. Um, I mean, I know there within a, like California, it's just so big that there's yeah. so much, uh, variation within the state, right. That, that there, there is, you know, significant difference between opportunity. If, you know, if you're the you know, if you grow up, if your parents are physicians in San Francisco, you're, you're, life outcomes are going to be much different than if they're, you know, uh, migrant agricultural workers in Bakersfield. But but I don't yeah. know how that variance compares to elsewhere in the country. Mm-hmm. I do know that this focus in general on kind of divergence between urban and rural outcomes is related to what I was talking about earlier and hmm. has also been something that, that economists and sociologists, political scientists have been focusing more on. Um, and so that can include within-state Kind of differences but I, i'm not sure how those compare to between state differences mm-hmm. yeah. you know if those are larger or smaller or not i couldn't tell you off the top of my head
0: so but my guess is those
1: differences are a little bit smaller than the between state but I, I'm, that could be wrong I yeah
0: okay um so let's get let's talk about some specific policies that might have effects on income inequality um so one one policy for example that states take different approaches to is the minimum minimum wage mm-hmm. so you have you, know, you have some folks who will say well if you just raise the minimum wage for everyone in an area then that will that will help every, that will kind of elevate everyone right and then critics of that approach will say no because then you're just actually making it worse because it then becomes much harder to even run a business it makes it more expensive to live there da 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 da, da right so what what do you what's your imp- your opinion on that um, as an economist, like which approach to minimum wage is perhaps better at addressing income disparity?
1: Yeah, so the minimum wage is a topic that there's been basically a huge advance in our understanding of since kind of the early 90s. Um, so the kind of the person you want to go to, the, the kind of the goat on the minimum wage, so to speak, is Aaron Dubay's at UMass Amherst. But basically, because we have an easy way to answer this question, right? So, so this goes back to there's a famous paper in 1994 by David Card and Alan Krueger, and they wanted to answer what's the effect of the minimum wage. And, and the problem is that if I'm just looking at data that just has minimum wage by state, mm-hmm. um, that's not randomly assigned, right? That I don't I don't have like a clean treatment and control group. So what yeah. they did in that early paper was look at New Jersey and Pennsylvania, in mm-hmm. one of the states, I think it was New Jersey, but I, I could be remembering wrong, raised the minimum wage. The other did not. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they take all the counties right on the border, right? So at the okay. border of the states, there's a policy discontinuity. But basically, mm-hmm. you know, think about Vancouver and Portland.
0: Right, right? exactly. They're pretty much the same.
1: Place. Right. Mm-hmm. They're the same geography, basically right. the same labor market. So mm-hmm. one can act as a control group.
0: Oh, Interesting.
1: Yeah, this is called this is kind of the, the method of empirical work that's popular in economics, this type of quasi experimental study or what's called a natural experiment sometimes. And and they looked at the effect of the minimum wage on employment, and they found it really didn't have much of an effect on employment, that it, it was either basically zero or really, uh, you know, maybe slightly negative, but not in a statistically significant sense.
0: So by employment, you mean number of people who have jobs? Right. Okay.
1: And so, so that was 1994. Since then, uh, Aaron Dubay at UMass has, has done a number of papers on this. So one, he takes that formula from Cardin kruger and generalized it to every single border where there was a policy discontinuity between, mm-hmm. uh, I think he started in like 1988 in that paper, and goes to like 2010 or something, and mm-hmm. looks at this, finds no, no negative effect on jobs, um, and then he has a bunch of follow-up papers. So one that came out a couple years ago now, where he looks at the effect on not just employment, but the total number of jobs and finds that it's either zero or slightly positive. And if you look at the effect on the distribution of family income, it's, it's unambiguously positive hmm. um, in terms of the effect at the bottom. Now, that's not, uh, it doesn't get us everything we want because Finding that existing changes in the minimum wage, which have generally been pretty small, right? If mm-hmm. raising it by a quarter, don't affect employment that much, doesn't tell me what's the optimal minimum wage. Right. Okay. I don't know the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a harder question to answer in practice. What we do know is that small increases in the minimum wage are unlikely to cause unemployment. And mm-hmm. that as observed up to this point, they do improve the distribution of family incomes for those at the bottom mm-hmm. so okay the, the effects aren't massive mm-hmm. um but they're there and again the caveat being i don't know what the optimal minimum wage is it will mm-hmm. certainly vary you know it's going to be different in portland than it is yeah you know, in rural tennessee mm-hmm. um and basically all the studies that we have are for small increases because that's right mostly how the minimum wage has been increased so i don't know what the effect of going from you know 15 to $22 an hour, I can't say for sure that that's not going to, you know, I don't know what the effect of that's going to be for sure. So, okay. um, but I think, you know, I think a minimum wage, like I I do think it's an important policy. I don't know that it's the answer to like, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: it's not going to solve all the problems. Right. So it's important, important policy. It's important to think about carefully and get right. But even if you have like the optimal minimum wage, which Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is, right. It's going to be, you know, that's not going to Poverty, inequality, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not going to solve all those issues. So
0: what about um, UBI or universal basic income? We in some we kind of had a little bit of a test case on that in the pandemic. Right. When in over the last couple of years, families have been getting pretty significant, depending on how many kids you have and what your overall income is, pretty significant cash from the government. You know, I've got four kids, so it was it was great. <laughs> I was like, yes, another, Uncle Joe's giving me some more money. Um, but one, one thing I noticed, and again, I don't know if these are connected, um, but then there's also been a sudden kind of labor shortage and it's almost everyone out here, you know, you see for help hiring kind of desperate, especially for lower wage jobs, it's become harder to hire People in those jobs. I don't know if those are connected, right? Because you you hear people speculating, right? Like my, I've heard that from my parents. Like, oh yeah, well if you if you just give people money, then they're not going to want to work, etc. So mm-hmm. what's I guess what's your what's your thought? What do you know about those those kind of strategies? Like, um, just giving a certain a certain kind of base income from the government um, to people and families who have less income overall. Is that a good approach?
1: Um, So we don't have a lot of evidence on what the causal effects of that type of policy are. Um, The one, there's a recent paper uh, by uh, Damon Jones, who I think is Chicago and a co-author, where they look at the effect of the Alaska Permanent Fund, since all Alaskan residents receive this yearly dividend. Oh, how um, much,
0: like how much is that? That's interesting. Yeah,
1: it's it's not a ton, mm-hmm. um, but they try to estimate whether there's, you know, negative employment effects that the okay. effects are, uh, they, they find that the effects are small, but it's hard it's hard to tell. I, I'm not sure how generalizable that is, mm-hmm. right, or, or what the external validity of looking at that is.
0: So people are paid to live in Alaska, basically?
1: Basically, yeah, huh. some small amount because yeah. of it's the oil dividend,
0: right? Oh, right. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So it's not just because it's hard here. Have a little, have a little money.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I I don't know, you know, so the, the, the labor shortage, uh, issue, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I like that terminology. I have to think, I, I haven't thought, you know, I think what is a shortage? You know, if you think about Econ 101, what is what, why is there a shortage? Well, a shortage happens when you have a price below the market clearing price. So the solution to a shortage is to pay, increase the price. So in this case, it would just mean pay a higher wage. So what's going to happen is if there's a shortage, um, you know, firms that can't pay the higher wage will go out of business. You know, that's sad for them. But on the other hand, we're selecting for the firms that are more efficient because they can afford to pay the higher wage. So I'm not sure, hmm. I, I don't have super concrete thoughts on this Mm -hmm. i i was a fan i think the child tax credits is a Mm -hmm. good idea independently of the labor supply effects because um one if you look at basically net of migration like fertility is below replacement in the Mm -hmm. u.s and population growth is a bad thing for for economic growth in general Mm -hmm. so kind of our models of economic growth um the the kind of famous model that the well the model that I used to think about growth is it's called the Romer model or Mm -hmm. at least it's a baseline so Paul Romer won the Nobel in 2018 I'm forgetting which year 2016 2018 but basically the idea is that growth is driven by the production of new ideas for for things that can be used in the production process and ideas depend on uh, the number of people that you have right Mm -hmm. and so even if it's not the, the total size of the population. There's some follow-up work. Uh, Chad Jones has a paper where he says that it's going to depend on the rate of population growth. So all that to say, the child, ta- the child tax credit is desirable for other reasons beyond the labor supply effects. If we're thinking about growth effects and kind of slowing population growth in the United States and hmm. fertility dropping below replacement, um, that's that's not a good thing, hmm. right? That's that's headed for kind of if you think about what's happening in Japan, rising right. dependency ratios way more that the ratio of kind of people old age to young and creates problems for the solvency of social security. Hmm. Um, there, there's lots of problems with slowing population growth. And so lots of reasons, economic reasons to want a child tax credit and that it mm-hmm. makes it easier for people to have kids. And that's yeah. good for, for growth beyond any labor, you know, labor supply, mm-hmm. uh, effects there so so I'm a fan of the child tax credit mm-hmm. for for those reasons also because I there's normative reasons too I think yeah it's
0: just yeah absolutely
1: make so it, if, if people want to have kids we should make it easier for them to have kids
0: absolutely so, yes I don't have a problem with thank that. you yeah. for that <laughs> <laughs> uh having kids is hard you know every little bit helps um So what then are some policies that you've studied that you think are effective in addressing income inequality?
1: Yeah. So the answer is I don't have a good answer. I I don't have like (laughs) deliberate solving it. So (laughs) I wish I did. I wish I could say with confidence that you know I do think kind of making the, the income tax more progressive. So I think we do need to raise marginal tax rates. Like, I, hmm. you know, they've, again, they've been, st- the top marginal tax rates been steadily declining since 1950 or 1960.
0: Okay, wait. And that means rich people are paying fewer taxes. Like, is that what you're on, saying?
1: On the margin. So what it What means, does that mean? Is, so <laughs> when you, there's different tax brackets, right? So, yeah. so like very, in a, suppose there was a system with two, tax bracket, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you would have one rate in the first bracket. So let's Mm -hmm. say between zero and $50,000, you would pay on every dollar in that bracket. I don't know, a rate of 18%. And then between 50 and above, you'd pay a rate of 27% or something. I'm just making this up. But right. So that 27% would be the top marginal tax rate. Okay. Right. So um, I forget what the threshold is in the top tax bracket here in the U S it's in the, 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 hundreds of thousands of dollars
0: mm-hmm. yeah. to
1: be in that bracket, but it's 37% right now. So okay. uh I should know this off the top of my head, but I don't. So let's say it's uh, uh it's gonna bother me.
0: <laughs> I'm I'm impressed at your your recall by the way. So I feel a little bit better now that you actually have to look something up.
1: Uh so for single uh, if you're a single person, only income over $523,000 is taxed at the top rate, right? So, okay. that's, so, so that's 37%. So every mm. dollar over 523000 it's actually 600 So that 523601 dollar taxed at a rate of 37%. Okay. Every dollar below that is taxed at a lower rate, depending on what I bracket see. it falls into. I see. So in
0: 1960,
1: 1950, that top rate was 90%.
0: Wow. So wow.
1: Right. Um, so I'm not saying we go back to those levels of top marginal tax rates, uh-huh. but using it a little bit um, is probably good. The other thing you, I think, a principle of tax fairness mm-hmm. is equal treatment for equal income. So that is a person who makes, let's say, $80,000, right? Whether that's $80,000 from labor income or from capital income, it should be taxed at the same rate. Right now, yeah. it's not. So capital income. You know, it is treated more favorably. Um,
0: oh, and that's interesting because how it's taxed. Yeah. Okay, so you're saying that income that you get from, say, investments, um, is actually taxed less than the income you get from working really hard at a job for forty hours a week.
1: Yeah. So for most people, uh, like the capital gains tax rate doesn't exceed fifteen percent. Okay. Um, so, if, you know, so uh, basically it would be better if we could simplify the tax code and, and, and just yeah. say equal treatment for equal incomes. It, this is my opinion. Mm-hmm. You'll find economists disagree, although I think most economists would like to simplify the tax code. Sure. But I, that may or may not positively affect inequality, but I think treating labor and capital income more equally would. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know, beyond somewhat increasing top, Tax rates. There's debate about taxing wealth directly, so and this is very kind of controversial. And this was in a number of the, in the Democratic primaries in 2020. This came up, um, basically a tax on net worth over you know 500 million dollars, or pick your threshold, right? And so oh, it's not income, but net worth, and you'd have to pay it. Um, and yeah. so this is, you know, Gabriel zuckman at Berkeley is a big proponent of uh, this type of tax. I'm I'm not, I'm not sure where I stand. I think it could Mm -hmm. be a good idea in theory, but it's hard to enforce, um, that there's other issues that go into wealth taxation. Um, but that's another proposal that's out there. I don't think there's a lot of support for it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then lastly, there's, there's, you know, maybe perhaps more sort of industrial policy type interventions by, you know, the federal government. So, know, one of my favorite historical policies, kind of one of the most successful things the federal government has ever done, is the Tennessee Valley Authority, which you know uh, Mm. was basically designed to modernize and develop the electricity infrastructure in the south. This was kind of a New Deal program, and basically the TVA has run a budget surplus almost entire life. It's basically on net, brought Mm. in money. Uh, in addition to studies show that it increased kind of not just local productivity, but productivity in the aggregate. So it was a really effective policy. So um, it hasn't really been replicated. So something like mm-hmm. that, which would, you know, uh, by direct you know government investment that would also provide jobs would be a way to kind of it's not mm-hmm. directly addressing inequality, but it's addressing maybe some of the, the underlying issues related to st- stagnation and mm-hmm. uh, kind of regional divergence, which mm-hmm. I'm concerned about. Yeah. So uh, that's probably not a satisfying answer. I don't mm-hmm. have, you know, you know, the, the policies that are out there, increase income taxes, wealth taxes, you know, increased government investment are all things that people suggest. You know, I, I do, support, you know, a child tax credit would significantly, you know, it would have an impact on inequality. We know it reduced right. the child tax credit that we had over the past, you know, year plus mm-hmm. did reduce child poverty actually significantly while wow. it was in effect. And then its expiration, basically immediately after it expired, it, you know, just mechanically plunged, you know, a, wow. a large number of children into poverty again. So, you know, that was a policy that did have a big positive effect, but I don't, I don't have an answer. I don't really have a silver bullet for sure what's going to solve inequality.
0: Yeah. I kind of want to shift gears a little bit here and maybe step back, maybe lesson, a lesson to kind of the 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 hard data landscape, but more maybe more theological or philosophical, in yeah. terms of, I mean, how should how should Christians think about money and economics? Right? Is there, do you think there are certain economic systems that are um, more harmonious with Christian values and a Christian worldview than others? And if so, what would those be?
1: Yeah. So there's a great. So I taught a class, and I am. I'm going to teach it again, not not next year, but the year after, yeah. thankfully. Uh, anyway, in fall 2020, called Religion, uh, Capitalism and Religion was the title oh, wow. of the course. Okay. And so the bo- a book that I have students read is this book right here, R.H. Taney's Religion mm-hmm. and the Right of Capitalism. I think you'd really like it. Uh, he looks very favorably on scholastic thinking. So, um, <laughs> But uh, that this is a question that he wrestles with uh, kind of in that book. And so I'll, I'll give you kind of two answers. The first is that he, he Tawny basically proposes four different, he, he says there's four different attitudes Christians can take or a rel- religious person can take toward kind of the material world and uh, in, in economic affairs, right? He says that, you know, on the one hand, we could be kind of take the ascetic approach or aloofness or, or almost like kind of, it's almost dualistic and thinking that like, that's the material world. It's gross. We don't want to be a part of Mm -hmm. it. We should just be set apart as Christians. Um, and so that's one attitude that we could take that people often do take. The second is just indifference, right? That, that Mm -hmm. we could, you know, think of it neither as good nor bad, but but it's just largely, it's almost like it's a separate sphere that we have to take part in, Mm -hmm. but our engagement with the material world has nothing to do with our spiritual life. Right. So, Mm -hmm. so the first attitude is it's, a bad thing almost Mm -hmm. the second is indifferent right that you have to earn a living but it doesn't have anything to do with it Hmm. uh the third attitude tawny says is we could take one of kind of a reformist approach that we could get super agitated about specific economic reforms and specific economic activities and really dive in um he doesn't like any of those three Hmm. he says none of those are, are satisfactory um he says that uh basically he he likes um what i would call what he characterizes is kind of a scholastic view which is basically one that views all of society as a single social organism Hmm. um, that's holistically integrated and he said i'm just going to read he has this great quote he says that it may you know the religious view of the world may instead at once accept and criticize tolerate and amend welcome the gross world of human appetites as the squalid scaffolding from amid amid which the life of the spirit must rise and insist that this also is the material of the kingdom of God. And so Mm. he advocates for this more innovative approach. Um, So that's easier said than done. I don't know any economic system. You know, economists are actually bad at thinking about this if you look at like Hmm. the past 10 years of journal articles in American economic review or quarterly journal of economics, I thought you'll find the word capitalism or most you'll find it a couple times. So we don't really economists think about like market structure. So is Mm -hmm. there a lot of firms in the market or is there very few? Is there a lot of buyers or is there a very Mm -hmm. few, are they making differentiated products or identical products? But thinking about social systems is not Mm. super common and talk about capitalism, Mm -hmm. even less so. I think most economists would be hard-pressed to offer a definition of what capitalism looks like. Um, You know, I think Tawny's view there is that there has to be some consideration of where, you know, kind of our our material life, our economic life, falls within kind of the the greater moral order. So his Mm -hmm. reading of the scholastics is that basically economic life for them was just one of... A, a multifaceted part of moral life that it wasn't mm-hmm. separate, but that economic decisions were like other sort of moral decisions that we had to engage in and that there was, you know, right rules or, or, or norms for, for governing them. And so, you know, this, there was kind of the prohibition of usury, the law of just price, all this stuff, which mm-hmm. the specifics of Tawny doesn't, you know, necessarily really care for, but right. his point is that it was, it w- was thought of as kind of a sphere of life that we could, analyzed in the same way as we would other questions. Hmm. The evolution of the element of capitalism throughout history has resulted in kind of the compartmentalization of the life and the material life, yeah. and that that's created problems for mm-hmm. the church and for uh, how we organize our material life hmm. in general.
0: Yeah, you're right. I do, I do like this guy. <laughs> I like that fourth option. Of course, then you know, then my that my my idealist is like yes that that sounds right, of uh, from those four options in terms of a, a Christian approach, but then there's my pragmatic side which is like okay but what does that actually look like in practice how do I
1: yeah
0: how do I especially I, as an individual right I mean I don't I don't decide policies I can vote you know when it when the election cycle comes around, but what does that look like to to live that way in relation to wealth in my own life i guess yeah
1: I, I think one answer is at the very least like we have to actually consider the normative implications of our economic arrangements so economists we really like to fall back on efficiency it's hard mm-hmm. but our notion of efficiency is very narrow it's so it's pareto efficiency named after the statistician filfredo pareto it's the idea uh, a situation is efficient if no one person can be made better off without making someone worse off, right? Super narrow, right? Mm-hmm, and so, mm-hmm. it uh, in a policy that is efficient or or causes an improvement in efficiency is one that makes at least one person better off without making making anyone worse off. But like, okay, you know, a world in which. Uh, you have one person that owns all the wealth, that's a Pareto, that's an efficient outcome because I couldn't make myself better off without taking from the one guy who has all the wealth and then he's- made Oh,
0: interesting. Off, you know, yeah. Right.
1: And so that's a very narrow way of mm-hmm. viewing economic arrangements. And so uh, at the very least, e- economics itself can actually supply the kind of norms and morals that, that we, the, it can't supply the end. We want to serve, right? It's very mm-hmm. good about means ends calculation. Um, and, and that's what economists are trying to do. But we're, we're not very good at and figuring out what those right ends are. And so, you know, Tawny points this out at the end of the book too. And, and this is the, the, the other quote of his that I really like. He says that uh, both the existing economic order and too many projects advanced for reconstructing it break down through their neglect of the truism that since even quite common men have souls no increase in material wealth will compensate them for arrangements which insult their self-respect and impair their freedom and so you know some consideration of those ends or teleology if you Mm -hmm. want to call it has to inform whatever our efficiency calculations are about how we're going to arrange our economic life. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think economists are the right people necessarily to, to do that. That's mm-hmm. the work of theologians and philosophers. Oh,
0: that's a cop-out. Okay. So what about, <laughs> okay, now I'm not talking to professor Petech anymore. Okay. So, but what about like, how do you live? I mean, is there anything, are there any kind of norms or principles that you try given all of your kind of knowledge about, about economics, um, but also the fact that, you know, you do have a background in philosophy and, um, you know, you, you are a person of faith, presumably, I don't want to assume, but I kind of assume yeah. if you're, if you're teaching at Belmont. Um, so yeah, I guess, how do you think about it just as a, as a, as a human being?
1: I mean, I don't know. <laughs> that's too, that's too, uh, uh it's it's hard I mean I'll, how do I think about it versus how do I you
0: know, or how do I you know. live yeah
1: I'm special in my day-to-day life i yeah. not I don't feel like I make you know you can do it you can to like create meaning in your own personal relationships mm-hmm. but in terms of like it, it's very hard to solve these kind of sy- systemic problems or feel like sure. you have any impact on them at all almost right, right. uh
0: but what about just like how, like choices you make with your own money? I mean, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think obviously, I think, you know, in, I think even research shows this, that, you know, people of of faith tend to be pretty charitable in terms of donating and things like that. But what about even just in in your local community? I mean, even your example there of a Tennessee program, like they're, I wonder if there's something about the principle of, I don't know, like subsidiarity, that's what it's called in like Catholic social teaching, but this idea of trying to work in the sphere, in your own kind of local sphere as much as possible, rather than necessarily jumping to oh, what the government is doing nationally, but rather what can I do in my local community, whether that's like buying local, for example, right? Like that's one small thing or... Um, Yeah. I don't know. Just little things like that. Are there, are there certain choices you make about how you spend your money? Um,
1: yeah, I'm very bad at that. And I'm, (laughs) I'm, so I'm a big hypocrite. Um, but, uh, no, I I think it's hard because I think all that stuff's great. And Mm -hmm. like, yeah, like who doesn't enjoy buying local when you can, but Mm -hmm. I think part of the problem is a lot of the, a, a lot of the major issues are so, so are externalities at a level that can't be solved locally so uh yeah. okay the, in in a famous book by James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock called the calculus of consent and Buchanan and Tullock are actually very 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 conservative thinkers but Buchanan makes this point that the size of the government or, or body that's needed to internalize an externality so that an externality is an uncompensated cost or benefit that some activity imposes on a bystander is proportional to the size of the externality. So with like climate change, right, that's a global externality. Mm,
0: I see. Okay.
1: So the, the the responding body to internalize that externality has to be proportionate to the externality. So right. okay. I, I'm just not, you know, yeah, I think recycling's sense. great. I think, uh, you know, driving an electric vehicle is a good idea. Mm-hmm. I don't think, you know, any of those choices at the, you know, individual level, the impact on climate change is the issue. The issue I'm the analogy I'm using here is going to be very small. So I think all of those things are good and that's a good ethic to have. My concern is if, if we're actually, if you want to solve the problem, I, I don't know that that's going to do it. So mm-hmm. maybe I'm just not optimistic enough, but I think, you know, uh, anyway, I'll, I'll stop there.
0: <laughs> well, Thank you so much. I feel like I've I feel like I've been drinking from a fire hose, but in a very good way. Um, I think I've, I just I've learned no, you didn't. No, I feel like I learned so much from this conversation from the be- very beginning. From oh, the difference, the technical difference between income and wealth. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Now I know that. I've also learned that economists love to make up terms and phrases for everything oh, yeah. that are not quite intuitive. But yet, when you give examples, I'm like, oh, okay, that concept makes sense. So. Um, No, this is, thank you so much. And I'm also, I also just feel kind of like this proud mama bear a little bit. Like, look how smart George Fox alums are. Like, I don't know. I think, I think it's amazing the kind of work you're, the kind of work you're doing. And I'm so thrilled that you were able to give us like a little, a little glimpse of, of your vast knowledge luke so thank you i
1: really really enjoyed uh being on thank you for having me yeah Uh, yeah proud george fox alum so all right go uh, bruins (laughs) yeah we're the we're the bruins here at belmont are you
0: serious oh my gosh that's amazing that's really cool all right well thank you so much and it was it was just so fun to talk to you again this has been a production of george fox digital if you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts on your phone or computer. You can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. And you can also find our playlist on YouTube at youtube.com slash georgefoxtalks.